This month on the Growing Edge podcast, we will be revisiting our February 2021 conversation with John Paul Lederach, Professor Emeritus of International Peacebuilding and internationally respected expert in conflict transformation. John Paul describes the stages that lead to violence in a society, as well as the ways that people heal and create communal networks of change. In a time when we are all deeply concerned about the tragic violence happening in the Ukraine, The Growing Edge is revisiting this powerful conversation about how hope for a more peaceful world happens in daily and personal ways, as well as through community, national, and global efforts. Welcome to The Growing Edge. Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. How are you today? I'm doing well. I have been looking so forward to this podcast. And and often on this podcast, we talk about uh, our personal growing edges. But today, we'll be talking about America's growing edge with John Paul Lederach. A wonderful guy. So welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and how to us and how we live between the words. Well, we'd love to extend a, a warm, growing edge welcome to John Paul Ederach. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with both of you, Parker and Carrie. Just really a dream come true on my end. You know, we've been looking so forward to this conversation. And Parker, you and John Paul have been friends for quite some time. We have, yeah. yeah. John Paul is not anywhere near as old as I am, but we've still been friends for what seems like a, a half a lifetime. And I just want to say a word about my dear friend professionally, uh, autobiographically, I guess, or biographically. He's professor of international peacebuilding at the University of Notre Dame, and everywhere I go, a highly respected expert in conflict resolution, mediation, and peace building. And he currently works for a wonderful foundation called Humanity United, which does groundbreaking work in, in those fields. He has worked effectively in more countries than we can possibly name, 35, I think, altogether, which includes Somalia, Northern Ireland, Colombia, the Basque country, Philippines, Tajikistan, Nepal, and in East and West Africa. And uh, that's by way of saying that this very wonderful, warm, good, kind man is also the expert that we need to think about next steps for we the people in the United States of America. So, John Paul, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's a privilege to be here. John Paul, uh, there is an essay that uh, came out on October 15th of this year, right before the election, uh, co-written with Melanie Greenberg. And I have sent it to so many people because it's, it, it was very prescient, incredibly prescient, but, but also had just some wonderful ways of, of trying to process what's been happening in America politically and how we deal with it as a community and personally. So uh, I think uh, what I'd like to read first, and then Parker's going to read something from the second half, but um, read something that was just, again, so prescient that really, that really struck me when I read it. And it says, As the 2020 election draws near in the United States, recent events point to how our polarized political process now runs the risk of spiraling into violence. Within the past week, Homeland Security listed white supremacist groups as the most persistent and lethal threat to security. Uh, Further, recent research has found that one in five partisans believe violence would be at least a little justified if the other party won the 2020 presidential election, while one in 10 says that there would be a lot or a great deal of justification for violence. And uh, to go on with a short portion from the rest of the essay, you say, while this trend may seem shocking in a U.S. context, and I'll interject not so much after January 6th and the insurrection, 
but this goes back to October of 2020, uh, countries where polarization has spiraled from dehumanization into armed conflict know this pattern all too well. When open violence begins to mix with politics, we must commit to stepping back from the brink and move into disciplined action. Valuable lessons have emerged from peacebuilders around the world who have de-escalated tensions, rehumanized adversaries, and forged the social healing necessary to reclaim a commitment to politics without violence. But this takes leadership from all levels. And at the very end of the paper, you name one of those levels. Now is the time for us to embody the first three words of our Constitution, we the people, allowing us to step back from the brink of violence and into the wholeness that lies at our nation's deepest core values. Well, that takes us exactly where we want to be, John Paul, and we want your help in knowing what we can do while we're there as we the people. That's who we are on this podcast. That's who's listening to this podcast. So please help us just dive in and get started on on this exploration of creative responses to our current situation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That uh, piece that Melly and I put together was very much oriented toward the concerns that we saw over the last number of years that continue to be on the rise. Uh, this notion of polarization, I think, is um, an oft-used term. What we what we know from places where we've worked where it's translated to violence is that that spiraling effect often has different forms of polarization that are very, very powerful. I mean, one, one part of that certainly is the common notion that we, as conflict escalates, we begin to pull back into groups that we feel more familiar with and comfortable with, a kind of a bubbling effect, mm -hmm. which the word polarization captures. What we don't always take careful note of is that what comes with that is a twofold process. One, it unfolds in the direction of continuously having more conversation with only people who think like we do. And the other is to have less and less contact and less significant conversation with people who are different. And that means that we begin to rely on all kinds of forms of secondary communication but also that internally within our bubbles, there's a powerful pressure not to disagree because we feel a kind of an existential threat from the other group. And so that reliance on indirect communication while being ha having a lot of pressure not to differentiate from the primary narrative that we're under threat are often the core you know, elements around which that separation begins to translate into seeing everyone outside of us as an enemy. And then we, the people, becomes extraordinarily complicated because it's no longer a we. It's just we and my people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this, this remains uh, among the biggest of the challenges. So uh, what I hear in that, John Paul, just for, for a moment, is that you know it's one thing to look at people who have a different position than you do on a certain political issue. Um, such as abortion, for example, and, and to say, we have a radical disagreement here, and I don't like what they believe, and they don't like what I believe, but we haven't yet escalated, it seems to me, to a point of saying, and if they get their way, I'm going to die, or, if, mm -hmm. or vice versa. So something of value is, is going to die. But at some point, policy differences that reasonable people might be able to have seem to morph into life-threatening differences. Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah, that there, there is increasingly an, uh, a sense that the very core of our identity and ourselves will disappear if they win, if they prevail. Mm -hmm. So that it, it has this uh, all-or-nothing um, component to it, that we either retain and win everything or if we lose, we disappear. And that's often a characteristic of, of what we refer to as deep identity conflicts, where the, um, the core of it is around an existential question of our survival. And I think that one of the things to historically in the United States that has been true is that while we've had tough electoral campaigns, we've not translated it into an existential all or nothing 
uh, that we will in essence lose our identity completely or we disappear. And that seemed to be increasingly on the rise over these last years and is now quite, quite prevalent. Um, a coupled of course with modern times where information flows by way of social media so fast and in such um, bubbled ways. In other yeah. words, people only are connected to one set of perspectives and narratives and those realities emerge very powerfully um, and with deep belief as we know from the circumstances that evolved around January 6th and, and since. And so these are really, we're on the precipice of extraordinary challenges in this country um, that really are the kinds of things that in other places when they've translated into open and sustained violence become exponentially more complex and more difficult to bring ourselves back from, which is why we were putting out this piece about what can we do to move to mitigate some of these patterns from the locations where we right. are. And just to tease out one more thing before Carrie and I get on with some questions about we the people, you mentioned um, us framing different kinds of realities uh, through this process of thinking and talking only in silos or bubbles uh, with the information segregation that goes on online. But as you know, um, a, a lot of people today are, are worried about reality versus unreality. Um, we, we have a member in Congress who has said publicly that the Parkland school shootings and other murders of school children were staged events. They weren't real. They were a conspiracy by someone to raise alarms. Or that the wildfires in California were... Um, set by space lasers owned and operated by Jews in some kind of conspiracy to disrupt the United States. And uh, that's not a reality statement of any sort. That's an unreality statement. That's a statement that might qualify a person for commitment in a mental institution if, if it got too serious. And yet it's part of our political debate right now, should this individual be ejected from the U.S. Congress. So you've probably seen things like that in other countries, but a lot of us in this country haven't quite yet. So is that part of the package that you're wrestling with too? It is, although I must say, Parker, I don't know that I've seen it on such a rapid rise so quickly and so extensively. That is that alternative realities um, found traction and connection that were um, part of, you know, the whole of political parties nationally down to localities. So it is, it is, um, it's an extraordinary um, challenge in many regards. Um, and I think increasingly, while we may in some of the locations that I've worked, your work, your in areas where people have um, territories that are controlled and within those narratives are pretty prominent about what's accepted. And they can be at odds with an explanation historically of events from other places. Um, and a lot of times what happens locally is it runs by way of rumors that can move pretty quickly and can really catalyze violence that we've paid attention to. But again, in, in our modern age, this has become you know, um, facilitated through the platforms that we have available by way of different news sources and social media that have, I think, exacerbated both the depth, the reach, and the pace at which this seemingly uh, has been coming together. Even though historically, I think all of us need to take a careful look that these patterns that are making and putting forward what is in essence uh, a case, a pushback case for white supremacy, that we the people actually meant only a certain set of us mm -hmm. and that that somehow is what's happening. Uh, that, that piece of the puzzle has long, long tentacles in our history. When our constitution, we the people was written, you know, um, a number of us on this call couldn't vote. Women had no right to vote. 
uh, people of color, slaves. You, you, you could walk down the long line, the list of people that, oh, it, that it took not just decades, but actually centuries to sort through to a place where there was a we the people that recognized uh, you know, equality in a much more robust way. Now we're dealing with a real a powerful pushback on that that has become, I think, much more widely untethered from some form of common triangulation about reality. Um, and that has translated into behavioral action that is justifying the use of violence. And that's the, that's the deepest and the scariest part of what we face right now. And it was interesting in this article, you were talking about shifts that happen and that, you know, first shift. And, you know, we were talking about this polarization and, and the and how we begin to only speak with people who and have conversations and contact with people who believe like we do or are in our bubble. Um, and then it kind of goes to actively wanting to undermine. And yeah. eventually, as we saw in such a terrifying way on the 6th, uh, January 6th, to actively harm through violence. So it was, it was interesting for me and kind of clarifying for me to, to have it articulate the shifts that have been happening that have disturbed me and concerned me, but have them articulate, oh, yes, there's a pattern to this. And that there's also ways that you have and other communities in different countries have seen the pattern and then stepped back from it. And that sometimes the beginnings of that healing happen even within conflict. And that was really powerful for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we articulate those quite often in our field of conflict as people have, even though they're not always um, explicitly expressed, that people begin to behave according to intention or goals that they have. Mm -hmm. And that's what's shifting. So an early goal might be to achieve you know, a particular interest that you have. You shift away from that into... Um, not just pursuing your interests, but wanting to block the other person or the other side from getting what they want. So you take much more of an uh, you know, obstructionist goal begins to overtake. But the shift from just blocking that the other side gets what they want to doing harm to the other side is where the imagination of violence begins to come in, in some form that's more active. And that's the scary part of some of those statistics that we've seen that if we are in a place where people can imagine the use of violence, we're already losing a very significant part of the bigger picture of what we have to deal with. Bruno Bettelheim once commented that violence is the alternative of someone who can imagine, you know, no other option. Yeah. And th so that violence is not normally the first thing that people turn to. And I think what's incumbent upon us is to find every possible way to imagine all the alternatives that are possible that mitigate and don't make that step into that imagination possible. And that's, a, that's where we're sitting right now, yeah. quite honestly. Yeah. Let me loop back for just a minute to something important you said, John Paul, about the Constitution and how this kind of white racism and white supremacy has been baked into the recipe for this country from the very beginning. There's a whole population of Americans, namely African Americans, who weren't at all shocked by the January 6th insurrection, by the use of violence by white supremacists against this core symbol of American democracy. They weren't in the least bit shocked because for 12 generations, their lives have been hunted and haunted by white supremacist violence. They've never for a moment forgotten or even imagined that this wasn't a core part of the American experience. And so it seems to me, I'm sitting here wrestling with this notion of the imagination of violence, as you rightly say, marking a turning point but in, in the case of a lot of white people, I'll take myself as an example, a failure of imagination about what this country has really been like for people who aren't me from the very beginning. And that would include violence against women and violence against Native American and violence against white men who had no land, i.e. poor whites. Um, I'm, I'm one of the rare types in this country's history that has whose life has 
can be expected to be largely free of such events. So it, I wonder if this is a confounding factor in the American situation, or again, is it something you've seen in other situations around the world where people f- simply forget their own history or manipulate their own history in a way that feeds current uh, violent potentials? Yeah, no, absolutely, Parker. And I couldn't agree more that uh, this, the word reckoning has been coming forward a lot more mm-hmm. of late. And I think that reckoning, which almost feels like a wreck, <laughs> you know, it, is that we're, we're front and center with needing to face ourselves, those of us that have been privileged. And the escape routes of finding other ways around it or deferring it to another moment or uh, hang on a bit more I think is not only not advisable, but it's less and less feasible. And you are precisely right that people who have suffered the most and have seen the direct violence are not the people who carry forward the history from privilege. That is common pattern in other places. People who have suffered have long memory about the points of suffering. Mm -hmm. People who have gained privilege often have short memory about the suffering of others and only lift forward what their preferred narratives would be about that process. So if you're in a place like uh, the Balkans or Northern Ireland, you can be in a conversation with someone and depending on where they're coming from, they may mention something that happened and you take it, that happened last week. They were actually talking about the 1500s. You know, they they were making a reference point to a place that dated way back that was something that had been brought forward about the nature of what they have had to face and how the depth of that goes. And I think that's, you know, I said uh, recently in a couple of pieces that I've written, I think the hardest three words to hear in America right now are, I can't breathe. And we know where that's coming from. And I think the hardest three words to say in America, which is more you and I, Parker, (laughs) you know, um, the hardest three words to say is, I am racist. Mm Nobody wants to face, we, we, you know, it's always curious to me that people want to attach it to a single bone. So they say, I don't have a single racist <laughs> bone in my body. It's like, it's not about your bone. It's about the long story of who you are and what have, what has your people have participated in that is still alive and well in, in our immediate moment and in our relationships. And it's that that we have to reckon with. Yeah, absolutely agree. And just to add one thing on onto that, it's people who look like me, you know, white men especially, but white people generally, who, who not only don't want to say, I am racist, but who want to flip the script in the wrong direction and project on people of color all the violence that they can't acknowledge in themselves. So what have we heard time and time again after the murder of black people by police, for example? We've heard, look at that terrible conflagration that's happening in Minneapolis, all because of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Look at all that violence. Well, I know people who've worked the streets in Minneapolis, and a lot of that was outside agitators, and some of it, yes, was profoundly grieved, rightly grieved people within the community who saw their lives and property being stolen from them. But the violence done by a few members of a protest crowd, just a few members, 95% of those protests have been nonviolence, is in no way comparable to, to what white supremacists unleashed on the nation's capital on January 6th. And yet there are scads of white people who want to say, no, 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 the problem is Antifa, the problem is Black Lives Matter, and who even wanted, tried to get away with saying that the crowd that, in, that did the insurrection was largely composed of Antifa and Black Lives Matter, which is just such a lie on the face of it. So it's incredibly complicated, but I think in focusing on people like me, that it gives us something of a handle on the problem. Well, absolutely. And I think part of that shift, you know, that um, that keeps coming back to me is the dehumanization of the of another person or another group of people. You know, that imagination to violence is much harder 
when you are not dehumanizing the person that you might be committing violence toward. And um, I think that's a really powerful idea, too. How did we start dehumanizing one another? Well, that's been, again, in the DNA and the long history of the country. But how is that kind of shaping and forming our conversations now and this escalation that you're talking about? To not see someone with respect and dignity as a human, a fellow human being, you know. And in terms of the things that have been just so concerning and hard for me to kind of like get a handle on is just the escalation of that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, sometimes uh, in my area of work, we try to find ways to place the very complex into the simplest of terms. It's that mm-hmm. uh, that search for simplicity on the other side of complexity. So one or two ways that I've found helpful because they are more than anything, um, it's always easier to see this in other people than to, to notice it in yourself. Mm-hmm. But I think the reckoning is, is to turn and look carefully at yourself. So one of the things that polarization does is it has us listening with our eyes instead of our ears. Mm. So what do I mean by listening with our eyes? That I first look to see who's speaking and what group I perceive them to be in before uh, I even listen to a single word. And then I prejudge whatever it is that's coming and I actually have them judge. So we, we in essence, we judge before we listen. Yeah. And that's what, so if I'm in a bubbled group and I'm looking out, if somebody appears to be from outside, I see who they are before I give them uh, any time of day. And that's, that's the, you know, an early step of, of dehumanization. A second one, which is very common, because and I'm saying these in part because I think any of us can actually take these two or three and just ask the question of ourselves, not someone else that you notice it more radically. And the second one is how quickly... Um, we we want to find an answer to complexity by finding someone to blame. Mm. So who, who's good and who's bad? So that blaming notion is a form of externalizing, but what it creates is the escape hatch of responsibility. If I can blame somebody else, so if I can blame Antifa for having created the violence that the police needed to respond to, that's a way of placing responsibility other than where it may need to be placed. If I can blame you for insulting me, I can escape my own responsibility. And I think what reckoning means is we have to turn and look at our own responsibility, in particular for those of us with privilege. We can no longer do this thing that we've, this act that we've done for, for centuries, which is to outsource responsibility to an earlier generation or to an earlier century. Oh, they did that. That's not what I do. But in fact, we don't notice that that is what we do. I think the third one that comes with that is that the dehumanization is very much caught in the simplest of ways that our language begins to shift. It's like the early window to it, how quickly we fall into the they. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not talking, I'm not going to preach to any choirs here because, boy, you come to my house at night when you're watching the nightly news and it's my little container of safety where you can rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And what comes out quick is they, 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 if they just, you know, and, I, and mm-hmm. catch yourself at some moment saying how quickly you are to project, not that these are actually people, but that they generalizes it out into a whole group of people. And now what if they're 74 million? How do we deal with you know, uh, a complexity that that has to represent in terms of what we know about humanity and how I have placed that into one single category that captures them all. You know, so I think it's, that has to go right alongside with the big, big question of how we participate, but also how our systems have gotten set up that perpetuate that. So it requires both a personal, I think a systemic understanding of those patterns and not to decouple them. But boy, it's it's your comment about dehumanization. That's not like somebody, some something that only other people do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Something that's deeply prevalent in, in how we actually are sitting with the complexity that's around us. I have um, this amazing group of women I have a book group with. and But we were talking the other day, and one of the women in this group was talking about praying for people who... Uh, are very different than ourselves or who you would consider like one of the they 
and that it was easier for her to do that with leaders that were far away, you know, that was in some ways abstract, than folks close in that were right in her own town. And uh, that, that practice of seeing them again as human, as someone to start that process with. As Parker has said in the past, some people will never be able to have a conversation with. You know, there's people on the polar sides that probably will not ever have be able to have that conversation. But um, it's been a really interesting uh, process in this group to talk about how do we make those steps to start seeing people as people, to, to not fall into the they. Uh, and when we do, to notice it, you know, and what's that all about? The, the reckoning with ourselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was really powerful how you were talking about that. Yeah, and, and it, it brings a story also to mind for me. That's what good teachings do. I think they, they remind us of stories of our own lives. And I really <laughs> like Carrie's. Um, I had an experience that really uh, convinced me of the power of what you said a moment ago, John Paul, about, first of all, owning our own stake in this, our own role in this, because uh, we're all stakeholders in this mess mm-hmm. that we're in. And as soon as we can get get with that idea, I think the sooner we can start making creative steps. <clears throat> I had just been reading Ibram X. Kendi uh, mm-hmm. on race, whom I highly recommend. And he says that step number one towards being an anti-racist is to acknowledge your own racism. He, he says you really don't have a choice. Every human being is either a racist or an anti-racist. There is no such thing as a person with, without a racist bone in his or her body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't ha- have to say more to persuade me. Um, the hope in, in what Kendi has to say is that he says every day in... A, a, hundreds of moments, you can make the decision to be an anti-racist by how you speak and what you do, and and through a process of self-reflection. So you're not, you know, even though we're all kind of born racist in terms of othering people, we're not locked into that. It's a moment-by-moment choice to free yourself from that, for a moment at least, by being an anti-racist. So I found myself before uh, a very mixed audience a couple of years ago, having been reading Kendi. And for the first time in a large public situation, I said, I said, first of all, something I've been saying for a long time, which is I'm drenched with white privilege. And I don't understand white people who say they aren't. I will say to them, I'm sorry that your cousin didn't get that job or wasn't able to buy that house, but I can guarantee it wasn't because of his race if he's white. You know, so that's white privilege. But then I also went on to say, and I have identified in myself a form of white supremacy. And I think it's a cop-out for white people to equate white supremacy with wearing a hood and burning a cross on someone's lawn. My form of white supremacy began with this notion that the white way of doing things is the normal way of doing things. I didn't hate anybody else because they did things differently, because they spoke differently or they had different cultural customs and habits, but I found them odd or bizarre or sometimes weird or a little off-putting, and I wondered, without ever actually articulating it, why can't they do it the normal way? And I think that's a very benign form of white supremacy that quickly becomes that quickly becomes malign, not benign. It becomes in some way cancerous because it's the first step toward othering people in a way that might lead to suspicion or to hatred. Um, and since that time, I have found myself quicker to acknowledge, for example, that people of color in this country weren't at all shocked by January 6th because I had an inner awareness of the fact that my shock has a lot to do with my privileged history as a white man in American society. So I think your proposal that we begin within is right on. 
Yeah, Parker, the word, there are two words that came out here that I want to just emphasize because I think they're helpful. One is your use of the word acknowledge. So one of the things we found really consistently in deep-rooted conflicts that have lasted for decades and centuries, especially in periods when people move toward uh, truth commissions. I'm, I'm sitting on a truth commission um, advisory board right now in Colombia that's got a three-year mandate to look at more than a half century of war, very complex. But the case that is before them is how to move from knowing to acknowledging. Okay, those two mm -hmm. words are tied in Spanish, they're from conocer to reconocer. And it's that emphasis on acknowledge or reconocer, which lends um, a twofold process at the same time. One is about this awareness that now is so explicit that you can no longer avoid it. So that's, that's where you're moving. I know racism exists. I know privilege exists. Acknowledge means that you are now beginning to say it's in my body. I'm, 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 I have embodied part of this. I've been a part of a system that has lived by it. So I'm that acknowledging. But the other is that acknowledging is often about the public legitimacy that it's not isolated, it is about a whole of a system, it's about a whole of a group, about a whole of a society. And where that society, so a truth commission in part, is to lift that forward and to say, this was, and it was wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the difference between knowing that violence happened and acknowledging that there were a whole set of things that put that into motion that make it both legitimate, but also raise it to the level that is precisely the moment that the potential for healing emerges yeah. with a greater capacity. Yeah. Whereas denial or just staying at the level of an abstract knowing that's projected doesn't. That's such an important point. I mean, the, the difference between knowing and acknowledging that shift from, and that, you know, I would think that only with that shift is there a possibility uh, of avoiding it happening again. You know, Absolutely. until there's that acknowledgement, that embodiment of it, that recognizing this actually happened and it and it was wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's just such an important point. And I think it's something that we're wrestling with in this country right now. How do we frame what has happened uh, on the 6th and, and leading up to it? And do we frame that? in a way of, of acknowledgement and reckoning and the naming of violence as what happened and it was wrong um, or not, you know, and, and that's, and that's a question we're wrestling with. Do we, do we acknowledge or just know? And I think there are two ways to do that, to do what Carrie's talking about and what you're talking about. I want to just be clear about both of them and I guess test them against your experience, John Paul. One important thing is for a lot of us to be agitating for something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in this country. That's a macro task, and we ought to get behind it. But in the meantime, there are a million, million micro tasks along the same lines that individuals can do. Suppose millions of people acknowledged in front of their families, their extended families, their, their neighborhood associations, their religious communities, and other voluntary associations, even the workplace, acknowledged, I am drenched with white privilege, and I harbor within myself the seeds of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I wish to acknowledge that in order to free myself from it and join the forces of anti-racism, anti-misogyny, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we need to stand against by standing for something better, but beginning with the, the, the seed planted within ourselves and the seed that we can be in these larger social settings. What if we simply bore witness to these truths as we know them in our individual lives? I don't need to argue with anyone. I just need to bear witness. Mm -hmm. I don't need to say you're wrong. I just need to say this is what I where I stand and I can do no other. I, I think, you know, that's the beginning of the seeds of a revolution. If we can 
take this task unto ourselves as well as projecting it onto the larger social structures of our society. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the macro micro is really a fascinating one because it's, um, and I've learned a lot of this from you, Parker, the power of paradox, that it's not about choosing one over the other. It's about how you hold and learn your way toward the greater whole that they represent. So that the, just take as an example, the evolution of what truth commissions have been called over the decades is quite interesting. You know, earlier, just a truth commission, then South Africa had truth and began to add the word reconciliation in. Colombia's peace agreement has the longest title for a truth commission I've ever heard. It's kind of poetic, at least I put it in poetic terms. Um, so it's to shed, to shed light on the past, on truth. So truth, shed light on the truth, learn to live together and never repeat violence. That's an English poetic translation of the title of their, you know, it's a paragraph as a title. But you, if you, if you look at that, it, it's requiring people to do macro and micro. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely the challenge, which is, so I'll go back to something Carrie said earlier about how we, we turn and look again, mm -hmm. you know, um, a phrase that you were using. That actually, there's a word for that in English. It's called respect. Because respect is built on the Latin, spacere, which means to look. Or, so a spectator is the same root as respect. Spacere in Latin is to be someone who is looking. Re spacere, re spacere is to look and then to turn and look again. Mm. Which I think is part of the micro and macro level. So at the micro level... It's this lifelong challenge of always choosing to see a person first mm -hmm. and becoming more aware of when you fail. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a one-time event. Oh, I'm now achieved being anti-racist or now I have acknowledged and therefore it's over. Actually, no, <laughs> this stuff is so deep. It just keeps coming back. And you have to have this constant sounding mirror kind of thing that helps you notice when it is that you've fallen by the wayside again. Systemically, that's the hard part. It's very hard for societies to want to look deeply at themselves. Mm. And you know, there's, um, there's a lot to be said for uh, here in the United States that what we really need is a reckoning of patriotism. That what a patriot means is people and us as a whole being willing to look at who we have been and choose to be something that can move toward the better side of what we have aspired to be. Yeah. but have not always realized in our systems, our laws, our institutions. And this, you know, for me, this touches very close to the work that I do because terms like healing and reconciliation often come up. I understand reconciliation to be something akin to a horizon. It, it gives you kind of an orientation, mm. but you never, you know, every day you're on a pathway that's taking you toward that horizon, right? But you don't actually fully get there. It's present and visible, but you, you have to keep walking at it. And the reason I say that is that too often reconciliation or healing are seen as events. Mm -hmm. If we just do A, B, or C, then it's over. And so I've often said, reconciliation is not forgive and forget. It's to remember and change. Uh. And change is ongoing. And it's embedded in the nature of our relationships, whether microcosmic, one-on-one, -on -one, community, local, or whether it's at the level of our whole systems, the relationships and how we build those out, which has been so unveiled in COVID around the question of who has access to what. So unveiled in vaccinations right now, yeah. who gets what first. You know, all of these things give us the unveiling, the seeing, and then looking again at what it is that our systems have created that have been indignant, that have not permitted people to live a fully dignified life because of how they have not had access and have been treated. And that's precisely why they were not surprised 
because people that have been proximate to it know the signs and know what it feels like. And I think that's the challenge that we have. We've been blinded. And the question is, how are we going to peel back what it is that has blinded our ability to actually see what is? And that's what acknowledgement and respect, I think, uh, actually mean in reference to human dignity. Mm, mm, mm. I, I love that, uh, to remember and change, not just forgive and forget, because, I, I don't know, I take that to a person, that doesn't usually work, you know, but remember and change has possibility. And, um, and, and I love your analogy of the horizon, and that comes back to something that Parker talks about often, um, this idea of faithfulness, that because we may not get to that horizon doesn't mean we should keep stop walking, you know, that it clarifies why we're walking and, and where we're oriented. Um, something that you, um, you talked about uh, at another conversation was um, this idea of, the idea of uh, the spider web, mm. that you don't have to have the entire country change. That there can be these nodes of change, uh, these play, you know, that 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 starts to go out and connect to one another, um, which seemed like a doable thing. Sometimes it's like you know, like world peace is a little like overwhelming. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you know, like let's sing about world peace. Like it's real fluffy, real fast, you know, and you just can't get your arms around it, but finding a way to remember and change here in my personal life and in my community that that's possible you know and then how they connect to one another yeah absolutely well one of the extraordinary things about a spider web of course is that the early strands of the web go go the furthest apart they're kind of very strategic in locating their spaces so if you go if you're around a spider web sometime, just follow it out to its furthest point, what seems to be a, quite a distance from where all the central activity is taking place, mm-hmm. right? And if you just take your finger and tap that spot, the whole of the web vibrates. It's, it's just sort of an interesting mm. metaphor. We've used that a lot. Um, in the book, The Moral Imagination, I talk about these four kind of things that I noticed where people were really um, finding ways to come out of deep cycles of violence. And there were four kinds of imagination. And the first one had to do very much with the web. That is an imagination of myself connected to a web of relationships that's inclusive, that includes my enemy. Yeah. Which was very powerful for local people because conflicts around the world that are violent are not about, you know, fighting a country half a world away. It's about your local neighborhoods. It's often very proximate. So they have kind of a proxemics of understanding about this work. And that actually gives you one of the principles that I think is very powerful. Don't worry about changing the whole. Ask yourself, what do I have access to? Mm -hmm. The principle of accessibility. And often you can reach that just one step beyond your immediate normal world of relationships. You're reaching out to something that is a part of of that wider web. And those, you know, those, well, the four points, if I give them real quick, the second one was that they never fell into the binary of, of easy explanations of deep complexity. In other words, they, they lived by the way of curiosity. And part of that curiosity was how they learned to survive. They had to, they had to constantly think through what all was going on at layers that weren't immediately visible. But that curiosity was also a curiosity about the landscape of other people who affected their lives. Mm -hmm. So they would often engage in ways that they would seek to understand what other people were doing. In fact, one group that I worked with in Colombia had a phrase that say, we we will seek to understand those who don't understand us. That was one of their Mm -hmm. kind of guiding principles. But it's that ability to, to retain a curiosity about what's going on that especially if you're reaching out to a place you have access to affords so many kinds of interesting conversations. The third one was just very simply that people got very creative. Because you're faced with things locally, it requires people to come together and think about what do we do about this here? So for example, on truth commissions, 
I think we may find the day that the U.S. has a larger scale truth commission on what happened with our indigenous peoples, on what happened with African-American, on slavery. You could name a whole host of these. But I think more likely is the principle of accessibility that we'll see a dozens and dozens of people engaged in truth telling in their local county, in their local city in ways that they begin to ask questions, who was here before us? What has been the treatment of people that have been here? And you're actually seeing a, a, a birth of those in the United States right now, which I find extraordinarily promising. It's the, from knowing to acknowledging, but it's, it's, it's taking on what they have access to and saying, we're gonna look at it here in our county, in our part of this state. And that you have a lot more access to. Mm -hmm. The final one, which was imagination of risk, and what I found was that people rarely took a risk of the massive leap. They didn't try immediately to go to the furthest point away from them. What they, what they took was the risk that they, and never in isolation, always in small groups, the risk that they could take that day, that week, to reach to something that had not yet been done. Mm -hmm. wow. And when they took that risk, it started to translate. The women of Wajir, for example, on the Somali-Kenyan border, they just had this phrase they used all the time. They started with and came back to one phrase. Let's just sit together and see what we know. <laughs> and every time they sat together to see what they knew, they discovered another little link that they wanted to try. And it was mm -hmm. just reaching out and reaching out. And those things began to translate until literally about a half dozen women stopped a war in that part of those two, the border area of those two countries. And so it's, you know, there, there are powerful examples, I think, that have very much to do with this, um, this ability to not feel like it's abstract, but it's actually very grounded yeah. and it's within reach. It starts with me, but it also starts with the relationships where I have access. Yeah, that's for me, that's been a theme that's running through this conversation that really fascinates me and knowing that we have to end pretty soon, which saddens me. I wish we could go on for a long time. I mean, I we've taken we've taken care of most of these problems now in 45 minutes, but I do think we need another <laughs> session with you, John Paul, to just tie up loose ends, you know. But let me let me try to land for me, land it this way. I'm really fascinated with the way in which um, the microcosm reflects the macrocosm. I'm really fascinated with the way in which what goes on in our individual lives gives us clues about what needs to go on in our larger social, political, cultural, national life. And the example that comes to mind has to do with patriotism, this word that you brought up 15 minutes ago that is such a vexing word in our in the United States of America right now with people claiming patriotism who actually seem to me to be engaged in trying to destroy our democracy. So here's what I know from personal life, and I think most of us know this, this thing. You cannot say that you love another person when what you really love is your own mythology of that person. You cannot say you really love another person when what you really love is your illusion that you have projected on that person because you're looking for something that no human being can provide. The projection of illusions, the mythologizing of individuals is the source of horrible, horrible collapses in personal relationships that were thought to be loving and suddenly turn out to be fraudulent. I remember very clearly reading, I think it was C.S. Lewis, The Grief Observed, um, who wrote about the death of his wife and the deep grief into which he plunged and suddenly one day realized, I am, I am now mythologizing my memory of this person. She wasn't the angel I'm now portraying her to be. And it does her no service, and it does love no service, to imagine that she was. So let me return to the reality of who she was, says C.S. Lewis, hmm. and, and continue to love her in, in, in the real world, not in some world of fantasy and imagination. That had a powerful impact on me. Yeah. So here's the political analogy. 
You cannot mythologize the United States of America as a city set up on a hill or an exceptional nation which has never suffered from all of the upheaval that those other people around the world have suffered from, a world especially blessed by God above all other nations, as if God were in, even in that business. You cannot mythologize the United States of America and claim love for the United States of America. If you love the USA, if you are a patriot, then you, that means you must come to terms, you must acknowledge the fundamental realities of this country. This has a parallel, by the way, Parker, to another writer who's quite extraordinary, Don Shriver is the name, I think, whose title of his book is Honest Patriots. Yeah. And the case that he's making is that you can't be patriotic unless you're willing to look honestly at what has transpired in your own country. And the lack of honesty is one of the biggest traps that we tend to fall into. Yeah. I think, and you know, honesty, what honesty brings is honesty always brings a bit of grayness. So it's not, not everything is not going to be just pure one thing or the other. It's going to be that we're going to see in ourselves things that we have to attend to that we have not. We're going to see the myths that have been perpetuated, but have no factual base to them. And we're going to see the suffering that has been hidden and invisibilized lifted forward. And I think that's one of the things that's happening now is that the uh, you know, and it's not a verb in our dictionary, but it should be. Systemic racism is a form of invisibilizing human indignity and suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yes. this is what we have to unveil and we have to see it for what it is. And I think that's what you're pointing at, that that is, in fact, a patriotic act. If you believe in a constitution that says we are all created equal. Mm -hmm. Yes. So. If you try to approach that from mythology or dishonesty, that paints a wicked picture. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have to find our way back to honest and deep conversations. And this is what's been tough, I think, is that people want a narrative that only explains one part of the complexity and lifts forward what they believe or benefit from, but is unwilling to sit with the ambiguity that they've participated in things that have created great harm. Yeah. Yeah. And that includes all of us. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the basis of love, is that kind of honesty. And I've always loved what William Sloan Coffin said about patriotism. He said, there are three kinds of patriots, two bad, one good. The bad ones are the uncritical lovers and the loveless critics. Good patriots carry on a lover's quarrel with their country. I think that's brilliant. And I think it takes us to the kind of patriotism we need. And, you know, John Paul, I'm circling all the way back to the beginning and, and that, that wonderful essay. One of the things you say at the end, when you're talking about, and we've kind of gone through some of the ways that people can personally engage, that spider web kind of idea of the nodes and what we can do in our sphere of, of influence and then one step more. You know, I find a lot of hope in that. You know, like I said, sometimes when you when you look at the macro and 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 issues that like systemic racism, it, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by it or what can I do by it? But you know, the way you're approaching this is, you have everything that you can do, because, mm -hmm. you know, you can commit. What is it you said? Making the commitment to the phrase, "We can do better." And believing that. And mm -hmm. you know what? I believe that about human beings. We can do better. We have done better. You've seen people come out of the most terrible situations and do better and remember and learn and start walking toward that horizon. And in this country, we can do that too. We can do better. And it takes conversations like this. Uh, it takes the lover's quarrel. Um, you know, it takes being willing to step a little bit out as much as you can. Um, maybe even reaching to that other side, to the farthest point, like you were saying. But uh, I, I want to thank you for, you know, framing it with 
here it is. It's big. It's complicated. It really is. But, but when you bring it all back down, you know, this is what we do each day. And this is how, this is how people remember and change and do better. Um, I don't know. I want to thank you for that, for that framing um, and the hope that it gives. Yeah. And, and, and now I think usually what we ask people at the end of our podcast is, what's on John Paul Lederach's growing edge? Yeah. Before I, before I go to that, my inclination was to say, I once heard a singer-songwriter say, you can do this hard thing. <laughs> Uh, Carrie, you've always been up to it and at it, uh, and and uh, with the, the the melody that doesn't let the song go away, and the lyrics that touch at the absolute core of what we're talking about. Amen. And I think that I think that's um, one piece. So, my my growing edge. Well, um, I have for many years been a practitioner, traveling and working with communities that have been deeply affected by violence in many parts of the world. I'm now in a philanthropy, a foundation. Mm-hmm. And one of the cutting edges is how to, to, um, how to be better at the way we think about accompaniment and resourcing of the changes that we're seeking to be in the world. And that's leading us to an organization that's had primarily a wide cast international portfolio to look deeply at how we engage much more here within the United States. I'm one of the growing edges is to be able to work with the Far East Collaborative in Washington, D.C. The Eighth Ward has a whole initiative around violence prevention and housing and health in their communities. And that's, um, it's just an extraordinary opportunity to work, um, you know, to be alongside of people who have gained such experience. The other is that I have been struggling a lot with that my writing keeps falling directly between poetry and prose. <laughs> and I'm not sure how why I can't write books anymore. So I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to do both and. And I'm going to keep at it. You've seen a few of these little pieces that I bop around. Oh, they're um, wonderful. I keep getting sort of rejection slips here and there on my writing because of this. But I think that's the growing edge. There's something metaphoric for me that we have to figure out where the old forms no longer suit the evolution of where our lives and where our challenges are at. And maybe it's emblematic of the need that we need to find the bridge between um, the the art and the soul of the thing, the art and the way that you are, are understanding it and not exclusively coming at it from purely one lens or the other, but there's a, as Parker would say, a greater hidden wholeness in there somewhere. I would highly recommend that you partner with Carrie Newcomer and become a singer-songwriter. <laughs> that, that's what saved my life, and uh, I recommend it to everyone. And yes, your poetry is wonderful. And as a folk singer, I say, why not? If you're doing something creative and hybrid, run with it, because it's beautiful. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. It's luminous. So the artist in me goes, go for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very good. Go for it, man. Let me just add my my gratitude, John Paul, for this session. It's been yeah. wonderful. You've long been a source of hope for me and new vision into in personal engagement. And I feel it again right now during a time when it's been tough to find my way through. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank both of you. This has been an absolute honor. Thank and you. Very revealing. There's so many layers of this conversation. So anytime you want to peel another one, just let me know. We'll be okay. back. <laughs> That's a we'll deal. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and to bring more voices into this conversation. 
All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because she knows how to keep walking.